0: Good morning. It is always good to be with you. We want to again, especially welcome any of you who are visiting. I know some are here for summit and other things, and we just want to thank you for joining us. As Dennis just mentioned, we are continuing the open series, a series that's focusing on various spiritual practices and disciplines. And if you're sitting on the end of a pew, you may notice that there's a small a stack of these cards and if you would pass those to the the middle of the pews for anyone who wants to to have these notebooklets uh, inside you'll find a space to later in the sermon write down a definition of what learning is at least for this series and then you'll also see a few practical ways for you uh, as Dennis mentioned to kind of live out this practice this week uh, in, in some meaningful ways. Dennis when you were sharing the story about the the massage study, and you started out saying that those who gave the massages had lower heart rates and all those things. I thought you were going to add, then the people they massaged, because that's how it would be for me. Like, if I had to choose, I wouldn't want to be a part of that study at all, but if I had to give a massage or get a massage, I'd rather be in control of all of that touching. So... I've never understood getting massages. (laughs) Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son and we thank you for the people that your son makes possible, the, the community that your son makes possible. And we ask that you would help us as we draw closer to you to understand that that we are drawing closer to one another that we're sharing life that we are are opening up not only our hearts to what you would have us do and be but we are opening up our hearts to one another in a world where it's hard to be vulnerable and it's hard to trust we want to be people who trust you who who lean in to what it is you're calling us to do and be, even when we can't fully understand it and, and even when we don't fully know where you're going to call us. We pray that you would give us courage and faith to trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. From, from the first moments of learning how to read, I remember learning how to read the Bible. I had this... This children's Bible with these hand drawn cartoons that were surrounded by words. By words that both my mother and my father assured me were God's words. It was clear to me from the youngest of ages that of all the books that we had in our home, and my dad is a, an avid reader, and so we had books all over our home, there was one book that was different from all the rest. It was the Bible. And so every evening when we would sit down together to read that book, there was a sense from my parents. I I didn't have the words for it then, but there was kind of a, a sacred significance, an expectation that they weren't just reading any words, but they were encountering God's word, that there was truth, that there was life. And that they weren't just expecting that for themselves, but they were expecting that for me. And as much as I loved hearing about Adam and Eve and and Noah and, and Esther and all the rest, I always loved to hear most about Jesus. Jesus being born in a stable, Jesus feeding the hungry and curing the sick, Jesus walking on water, Jesus telling his disciples to let the little children come and be close, Jesus dying on the cross out of this soul-deep compassion for us, Jesus rising again so that God could teach us that not even death itself has more power than the self-giving love of God. I I loved reading the Bible, and so I would read it night after night, and, and I would try to find new versions of the Bible that I hadn't read before so I could find new ideas that I hadn't really heard or encountered before and I got to the place where that was something that I I didn't just like doing I felt like I was really good at it in fact I remember in fourth grade there was this competition in children's worship of who could say the 66 books of the Bible backward the fastest and I won and i got this this gift bible this leather bible with gold on the, on the edges of the pages and i remember slowly leafing my way through that bible the the spoils of my victory of knowing the bible literally backwards and forwards and i remember slipping off to sleep that night sure that that god was happy to have me on his team right that that if we ever had some sort of eternal jeopardy, I was, I was going to be somebody he needed. And, and as the years passed, I, I, still, I still loved reading scripture. And I still loved knowing a lot about what was in those pages. But I always wrestled with that sense of of pride. Of of doing it because I thought I was good at it and finding a sense of confidence that that I may not be all that gifted at a lot of other things but I was gifted at knowing what happened in the Bible. And as the years have have passed, I find that that even now that I fall back on that that sense that that core conviction that confidence that I may not be good at a lot of other things but I'm really good at knowing what's in the Bible and yet I wrestle with this this realization that I didn't grasp in fourth grade and I still at times I guess struggle to grasp and that is that there is far more to encountering God's word in scripture than knowing what the words are on all the pages we aren't trying to master the content of scripture We're trying to allow the master revealed in Scripture to shape our character. We aren't seeking to become impressive academic experts in what the Bible does or doesn't say. We're we're trying to become authentic followers of Jesus in everything we do and say. I love our heritage. I really do. I, I love that in the churches of Christ... One of our core convictions is that we are people of the book. We're people of the Bible. That the, the Bible is at, at the center of, of how we understand what it is to be the people of God. And yet as great as the Bible is on its own, it's simply not enough. The, the Bible on its own can't solve all of our problems. It can't fix all of our disagreements. The Bible on its own it, it, it can't answer all of the the, the, the challenges that we face in our lives, it, it, it can't unlock all the mysteries that, that we come across. The Bible on its own cannot be the point. The Bible is always trying to point us on to something greater. Or another way to say that would be that the Bible is always trying to point us on to someone greater. Jesus didn't come and live and die and rise again so that we could have a Bible. We have a Bible so that we we have this pathway into this always unfolding story of how Jesus still comes and lives and dies and rises again. And not just for us, but somehow with us. The, the gospel isn't an event that, that happened a long time, of go, a long time ago. The, the, the gospel's an event that's still happening here and now. And I know that we know that. I know that at some level we've all heard this talk before. I, I know that we get it. We get that knowing the Bible isn't the same thing as knowing God. That we, we get that there's a connection there, but they aren't the same exact thing. We know that the contents of Scripture are always trying to point us beyond Scripture. But there are times when we forget, or at least I should say there are times when we act like we forget, and like a certain smug fourth grader I'm all too familiar with, we start to think that knowing what's in the Bible backwards and forwards is what makes us Christians more than anything else. We start to think that being able to win arguments about the Bible is what proves we're serious about being God's people. We start to take comfort in our own book knowledge pertaining to the subject of God and the topic of salvation, as if studying is just as important as living. The only way I know to break us out of this this. False confidence in our own knowledge. The only way to to break us out of this misguided approach is for someone to wake us up to what's actually happening when we start to focus more on how we study than how we live. In John, the Gospel of John chapter 5 We find Jesus speaking to the leading biblical scholars of the day when he says the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice. That's a perfect time for a phone call. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you. Do you hear that? Nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Diligently studying the words of Jesus. Skillfully explaining the words of Jesus, these things matter, but they never matter as much as encountering Jesus Christ as the living, active Word of God. There's a connection between studying and living, but they are not the same thing. And when we make the mistake of trying to replace living in the way of Jesus with studying about the way of Jesus, we've got a problem. What what separates those of us who who place too much emphasis on knowing all the right ideas about Christ from those of us who use those same ideas in order to get closer to Christ? what's, What's separating us? It's the motivation. That's what's separating us. Are we motivated by wanting to know more intellectually or by wanting to know more relationally? True Christian learning is always more about relationship than scholarship. It's more about being formed than it is about being informed. We're being drawn closer to Christ and his way of life through sharing life with Christ. And we are experiencing that way of life in a way that should be beyond our ability to dissect or study, or explain that way of life. I'm not saying there's no place for scholarship or information in the Christian walk. There's obviously a place for those things. But scholarship and information, study, those can never be the end goals of the Christian life. At best, they help us along the way in our Christian walk without getting in the way. And that leads us to our core definition this morning of what the spiritual practice of learning is. Learning is being formed, not just having information, but being formed in the image of Christ by listening to his word with an open heart and practicing his way with a trusting spirit. During communion, Dennis said there are times that we we try to get our head right, we try to get our attitude right, so that we'll start to live a certain way, but but Scripture has always known, ironically, that the very same Scripture we study, it is always known, that the Christian tradition has always known that it's, it's not enough to think or have a feeling. We've got to live in a certain way. And sometimes in living that way, we become who we were always meant to be. We learn by listening. Not just with our ears, but with our hearts. We we learn by living. We learn with a heart that is open to see new things that we've never seen before and actively trusting in new ways. Doing things that Jesus asks us to do even when they don't make sense and even when we don't have control and even when we don't know exactly how things are going to turn out. We learn through love more than through logic. We we learn through living more than just through studying. This is especially true when we open up the Bible. And no matter how many times, I know we're people of the Word, we're people of the book, we're, we're people who, who know the content of these pages, but one of the worst things that can happen is for us to decide that before we open up Scripture, we already know what we're going to find there. That, that we've already got the point. That we already have learned the lesson. That we've already mastered the information. You know, there are times when I'm in a conversation with Christian people or I'm in a Bible study with Christian people and it's pretty clear to me that our primary use of Scripture is to back up what we already think and do. To justify ourselves. And I've got to believe that when we do that, We are forcing our concerns and our agendas on Scripture more than we're trying to be open to the kingdom agenda that Scripture is trying to share with us from the heart of God. My dad studied under a a minister who, in his 50s, left preaching because he told my father, and I quote, I've already learned all you can learn about the Bible, I'm going to move on to something else to master. Now, it's easy to have a reaction like that when it's some other preacher, some other place talking like that. But I wonder if we all struggle with that sense, especially if we've been at church for a long time, if we've grown up in church and and our Bibles are well-worn and we know exactly where to find all of the greatest hits that back up what we're already thinking and doing and believing. But if we believe, not just in the word as it's written but if we believe in in the word Jesus <laughs> If, if we believe in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, then we should have some sort of hope, some sacred significance that we are expecting to encounter here that even if the words on the pages are the same, the word of God will speak to us in new ways that we don't get to control and we don't get to, to set limits on and we don't get to set all the definitions for. So let's try it out together right now. I mean, reading the Bible like that takes, it takes courage, it takes humility, it it takes faith, and it takes a community. I mean, because when I'm reading all by myself, it's amazing how often I hear exactly what I want to hear. But then when I'm reading in community, somebody will ask a good question that I've been running from, or someone will say something that I'm just not ready to say yet, and I'll realize that God's word is speaking, and I need to hear, I need to listen. So let Let's take a really familiar concept that maybe we have a sense we know really well grace. Let's stay in the Gospel of John so you don't have to turn too many pages. Let's pick a story that's really, in a lot of ways, probably familiar to most of us if we've been at church for any length of time. And let's see if by trying our hardest to trust that, that even if this is all familiar and well known to you, that that God is able through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the life of Jesus Christ to speak to us in always new ways that we will learn something here. We will see something here that we've never seen before. We'll encounter a truth that maybe we, we haven't understood before and that it will change, not just the way we think, not just the way we study, but it will change the way we live. It will change who we are. So as we, as we prepare to open this story together, I want you to know up front that of all the people in the story that make me wonder, she's the person that I, I wonder the most about what it is that she's, she's thinking and feeling. And we don't have her name. We're not given her name. We don't know a lot of the details that, that we'd love to know at the beginning of a story. But as we find her this morning... I want you to use your imagination of what it would be like to be her. And I have a feeling that if, if we could ask her what, what her story is, she would say something like this. I had no excuse for being there, no, no, good, no good reason to be there. But I was there by my own choices by my own decisions i was there and i was numb and that's what that's what loneliness can do to you it was early in the morning and i heard noise out on the street just outside of the house there were voices of men talking to one another and suddenly i heard those voices Moved closer out from the street into the house and then they were banging on the door to the room and then they were coming through the door and as soon as they came into the room, I knew who they were. They were, they were church leaders, religious leaders that I had seen around town many places before. And they were all talking at once, and I couldn't understand them very well, but it was clear that they wanted me to come with them. I heard one of them say, gruffly, just throw something on. We're leaving. So I got my clothes together, and I started to walk out of the room and through the house and out into the street, and that's when they took hold of me. They, they grabbed me. I had one man on either side of me. There was nowhere I could, I could run to. And I, I don't think I have ever felt so scared and alone in all my life. And I had a thousand questions coursing through my mind. How did they know I was there? What, what, what were they, where were they taking me? What, what did they, they want to do to me? And I, I knew with, without a doubt that, that things were going to get, get worse. None of them were really speaking to me much at all. They were just speaking to one another and they were obviously hurrying to get somewhere to meet someone and I I was hoping, even though I knew it was never going to happen, I knew that these men who had taken me into custody had the right to discipline me for what I had done. But there was this illogical part of me that was hoping that maybe they would they would stop for just a second and, and let me ask for forgiveness and apologize and maybe start over. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like I wanted this life. I, I'd fallen into it. I, I knew I could be better. I knew I could do better. I just, I didn't know how. And, and now time was running out. And, and that's when we rounded the corner. And I saw the temple. And that's when everything was clear. These men of God were going to drag me into the house of God and they were going to carry out the justice of God. And there was nothing that I I could do to stop them. And they dragged me into the temple courts and there's this this group of people gathered around a young teacher, a rabbi, and suddenly it's clear that, that that rabbi, that teacher, that's who we're here for. The men are holding me close. I have no way to get out of this moment. And I look over at this young teacher and I realize that he's going to be my judge. I don't know why he's going to be my judge, but it's going to be his decision to make. This isn't really about me. This is about him. And if he's like any of the other young rabbis I know, I don't have a chance of making it out of here alive. Have you ever watched a group of angry people stone someone who's begging for their life? I have. And I still have nightmares. Well, the rabbi looks over at these angry men and doesn't say anything. And finally, one of the men, who's holding one of my arms, yells out overly loudly, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commands us to kill her. What do you say? What do you say? And as I prepare myself for the condemnation that I'm sure is going to come, I can't I can't bear to look into this teacher's face. And so I'm just staring at the at the ground at my dusty dirty feet and i'm waiting and i keep waiting and he he doesn't say anything and my eyes are starting to fill with tears and that's when i notice <coughs> that he still hasn't said anything and my accusers are are still waiting They're losing patience. I'm praying for God to make it all stop, to to make the moment pass. Why would God listen to somebody like me after what I've done and the decisions I've made? I'm still waiting. And this young teacher kneels down in the dirt right next to my feet and starts to write. And there's too many tears in my eyes for me to read what he's, he's writing. And I can't tell if anyone else in the temple courts can, can read what he's writing. But finally, my accusers have had enough. They've lost their patience. They ask him again to make a ruling. The law of Moses commands us to stone a woman like this. What do you say that we should do? And they know. They know that... That rabbis always uphold the law of Moses. They, they know what they're asking, but there must be, there must be a, a specific answer they're, they're wanting from him. And then he, he starts to talk. And he doesn't talk like he's addressing a group of angry men. He speaks calmly and clearly and quietly like he's talking to just one man. I will will never forget what he says. He says, Let the one among you without sin be the one who cast the first stone at her. Let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone at her. Without waiting for a reply, he just knelt back down near my feet and started to write in the, the dust again. And I... I didn't know what was going to happen next. I didn't know what they were going to say, but I had never heard anybody talk about the law that way. Because if the only person who had the right to stone me had to be sinless, then who who was left? And for the first time in a long time, I felt a flicker of hope. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 8. going to pick up in verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay, we've probably heard this story before. You probably know the facts. You might have even even done a, a concordance study where you learned more about which Greek words show up here and the whole background of Does this story actually belong in the Gospel of John or somewhere else? If you looked in your Bible, if you have a translation, you may find that it was in different manuscripts at different places. What I love about that is it means that this story was so important to the church that they were going to find a place for it wherever they had to put it. I know you know the the content but I guess the question is, is there something here we haven't seen before? Is there something in the way of Jesus that, that's challenging to the way that we're following Jesus? You know, the, the Pharisees, the, the experts in the law of Moses... They know exactly what the Bible says when it comes to adultery. And they know that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. It's clear. It's straightforward. The Pharisees have the scriptural justification, right? The, the scriptural right to carry out this death sentence, not only on this woman, but also on the man she sinned with, though he is nowhere to be found. And while you and I would never agree to carrying out Leviticus 2010 in the year 2016, while we would never say that, that it's a fair Punishment of killing somebody who has committed adultery, I'm afraid that we are very much in danger of hurting already broken people in the name of being right and teaching them a lesson. See, the, the hard truth that we have to face, it's not so much in the story. The hard truth we have to face is in us. And that is that Christian people often treat broken people with harsh words and actions of condemnation because they have the book, chapter, and verse from Scripture that they think backs them up. But if John's story means anything, it has to mean that whenever we use God's word to justify judgmental and condemning behavior, we're wrong. Even if we think we're doctrinally right, we're wrong. We're as wrong as the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in John chapter 8. They have the scriptural right to behave the way they're behaving, to do what they're doing. And Jesus makes it clear that he expects more out of them. He's tired. He's tired of people using scripture... In their case, using the Old Testament law to be the minimum of what it looks like to be God's person. He makes it clear that the law that God gave the people through Moses was never supposed to be the high point of how they treated one another. It was supposed to be the low point. That God actually hoped from the beginning in giving the law that his people would one day outgrow the need for those basic moral training wheels, and they would be better people than the law required. Not that they would do less than the law required, but that they would do more than the law requires. Grace isn't less than justice. Grace is always more than justice. Grace always asks more of us than justice. Grace offers us more possibilities than justice. Grace creates better lives than justice. Justice may be where we start out, but grace... Grace is where we've always been headed. Grace is what we were created for. Now, this is a harsh statement, but I'm going to say it, which is ironic on a sermon about grace, but go with me here. Only immature followers of Jesus think that the best approach to dealing with sin is to condemn it. Mature followers of Jesus know from experience that the only real way to deal with sin is is to forgive it, with God's help, to forgive it and heal it. Too often, I think, we decide that the best way to deal with sin is to just call it out and say, hey, you're sinning. Stop it. And yet time and again in scripture what we have as we open our eyes to the way of Jesus in the world and we ask ourselves the distance between the way we're moving through the world and the way Jesus moves through the world, we find that Jesus isn't satisfied with with just condemning sin. Jesus wants to go beyond that. Jesus wants more than that. Jesus wants to to deal with it, to, to forgive it, to heal it. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, Jesus says. And he doesn't just say it to a bunch of, of biblical scholars 2,000 years ago. Jesus says it to us right here, right now. And we know, we know the truth is that we're all sinners. Sinners who are, by the grace of God, always undergoing this process of being transformed from who we are into who we're supposed to be, who we long to be. God is still, right now, helping each one of us overcome some sin struggle. Maybe we know about sin. struggle. Maybe we don't know about it, but all of us have these sin struggles in our lives, and that means that we still have a lot of changing to do. It means we still have a lot of learning left to do. The fact is, not only that we were wrong, we're still wrong. We don't know it. Not all the ways that we're wrong. We're not aware of it. And when we become aware of those ways, God will work through that knowledge and through that understanding to help us transform, to help us learn something that maybe we weren't ready to learn before. But it's not just that we were wrong a long time ago on some point. We're still wrong. And God's grace means that though we're wrong, God longs to care for us. And love us in a way that makes us whole. And God longs for us not to just experience that that process of being made whole. God longs for us to partner with God in this mission of helping everybody be made whole. As in all things, Jesus shows us the best way for this to happen. What it looks like. Jesus loves this condemned woman. He, He actually protects her from an angry mob who wants to kill her. And it's only after doing that that Jesus then speaks words of difficult truth to her about her sin. And it's obvious that Jesus isn't confronting this woman about her sin for his sake. He's confronting her about her sin for her sake. He isn't trying to create change in her life because she annoys him or threatens him. And he certainly isn't trying to create lasting change in her by treating her harshly. His only concern is her, and her having the trust, the faith, the hope to believe that because of him, she really can be different, and she can tell it. People, people can always tell. They can always tell if you're showing them a painful truth about themselves because you care about them, or if you're pointing out a painful truth about themselves because they're annoying you, or because their mistake has become your problem they can always tell the difference. And so can you. I want to be clear, brothers and sisters, I don't believe that in John chapter 8, Jesus, the word of God, is asking us to excuse or ignore sin. I just believe that God's word is asking us to never let sin be the reason we give up on someone who's struggling with sin. That God's word never wants us to use someone else's weakness or struggle or problem as the excuse we use to walk away. The world doesn't need another critic, it needs the church. It needs a church full of people who belong to Christ. It needs a church full of Christ-like, grace-driven people who refuse to give up on one another, who refuse to give up on anybody because we are convinced, not just because of the words we've read, but because of the word of God we share life with that God has never and will never give up on any one of us. And we don't want to just have to study about that grace. We don't want to just have to describe it and talk about it and define it. We want to experience it. We want to encounter it. And we want you to encounter it. We want you to experience it. And we want to trust that though we're imperfect people and though we still have a lot to learn and a long way to go, that God through grace can help us be people of grace. We have a lot left to learn. We have a lot left to understand and see and hear and live. May God give us the humility to admit that and the courage to pursue it. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives will be standing in various places throughout this room to receive you, to pray with you, to talk with you. And so if you came this morning with any burden on your heart or if you came filled with Thanksgiving and you want to visit with or pray with a Christian couple, I'm going to ask that you go to them. I'm going to ask those couples to stand real quickly so you can kind of see where they are in the room. Go to them as together we stand and sing.